When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. Well, welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Monday, as always. This is shockwaves from Friday's U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned the constitutional right to abortion continue to reverberate across the world. Major U.S. firms from Disney to J.P. Morgan and Apple promising to provide financial support to workers who may need to travel for health care in other states. But what about smaller business employees? We're clearly hearing warnings about the economic impact of that Supreme Court decision. One study suggests denying women access to abortion will be damaging for the US economy as a whole. We've got one of the authors of that report coming up on the show. In the meantime, it's also day two of the G7 summit in Germany. Fresh vows of military support to Ukraine coming from G7 leaders and the head of NATO earlier today too. Details on all of that coming up as well. In the meantime, the global bulls trying to build on last week's solid stock market gains. Here's a look at US futures and European shares. And as you can see, they are mostly higher. It follows Monday momentum in Asia too. Positive momentum that included a more than 2% rally in Hong Kong. The Hang Seng now down just 5% for the year as Chinese tech stocks continue their recovery. Compare and contrast that to the 17% fall in the S&P 500 so far this year. That's uh, the comparative performance that you can see in front of you. Thursday is the last day of the month, the quarter and the first half of the year on global markets. Some suggesting that these calendar quirks could benefit stocks in the days ahead. So we'll be watching for that too. Optimism growing. Also that the Fed might not have to act as aggressively to bring down inflation as once feared if the global slowdown does some of the work for them and takes some of the heat out of rising prices. Okay, let's get to our top story now, and that's Ukraine. Sources say President Zelensky is calling on G7 leaders to help end the war before winter. He spoke in a virtual address to the G7 summit. The leaders of the world's biggest Western economies pledged to continue ramping up financial aid and sanctions against Russia. And as G7 leaders gathered in Germany Sunday, Russia targeted Ukraine's capital. At least one person was killed in a missile strike that hit a residential block and a kindergarten. Fred Pleiken joins us on all of this. Fred, the truth is, if you want to see the war ended by winter, then payments that are provided to Russia to support this war, ineffectively supporting this war, effectively supporting this war, need to stop. And that's part of the discussion today, perhaps caps on Russian oil. How would that work? cap on Russian oil uh, prices and, and then also, of course, uh, trying to stop Russia from exporting gold. It certainly is something that certainly seems to be uh, pretty difficult. The EU uh, and, and the EU states that are part of the G7 and, of course, the United States as well, uh, Julia, they're saying they want to continue to ramp up the sanctions pressure. They believe that it is already having a, a certain effect on Russia, uh, not 
just by the way that Russia is able to pay for its military operation, but of course also uh, Russia's ability to get to certain goods, certain high-tech goods that it itself needs to produce weapons to continue uh, the invasion of Ukraine. So they do believe that there are some uh, effects that all of that is already having. On the other hand, it was quite interesting because I spoke about this topic uh, about a week and a half ago uh, with the spokesman for Vladimir Putin, with Dmitry Peskov, and he said he believes that these sanctions are not going to have much of an effect on Russia's capability to continue to prosecute what they call their special, special military operation because they believe that Russia is simply too big to isolate. And it's quite interesting when we talk about, for instance, a cap on oil prices. One of the things, of course, that the Russians have done, as a lot of European countries have stopped or uh, have stopped uh, importing Russian oil or at least imported significantly less than they had before, they've obviously sold it elsewhere. At the same time, the oil price has gone up so much uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin is actually making more money than he was before off those oil sales. So certainly very difficult. And all of that also having a lot of effect, of course, also on European economies as they pay a lot more for energy. So certainly it is something that appears to be very difficult. I think the G7 understand that they would need to find almost a global solution to all of this, as the Russians do believe that uh, that they are able to prosecute uh, this invasion of Ukraine a lot longer. But I think it's also really important to point out because um, it's very difficult to overestimate just how important that money is because one of the things that's clear from uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now is that the soldiers that Russia has on the ground there are contract soldiers, and the Russians have to pay them a significant amount of money to actually go into Ukraine and fight there. So that oil revenue that they get, very important for Russia's military operations in Ukraine, and obviously trying to stop Russia from having that oil revenue as important for the G7 nations that, of course, are meeting right here in Germany right now, Julia. Yeah, such vital points. You need money if you're going to pay mercenaries to go and fight for you. And I know that the talks today include India, uh, Argentina, South Africa, Senegal and Indonesia too. The question is, can some of these substitute buys that uh, Russia is now using be brought on board with these price caps? We'll see. Fred Plakin, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, Russia is denying reports that it has defaulted on its debt after missing a critical deadline on Sunday. Claire Sebastian joins us now on this Claire, what do we know? Because it was they were already in a grace period. So this is not a missed payment. This is the end of the grace period passing and there's confusion over whether or not the money has been paid. Yeah, Julia, this is confusing and it is murky. The Kremlin is saying this is not a default because they made these payments on these two bonds in the currency that the bonds were issued in, uh, in, in dollars and in rubles. That happened apparently on May 27th. That's also coming from the finance ministry and the Kremlin says allegations of default are incorrect, it says, because the necessary currency payment was made as early back uh, as May. They are saying that the problem here is that the funds have been frozen by Euroclear, which is a Belgian-based financial services sort of clearinghouse and bank. Their role uh, is, in theory, to take the money from Russia and distribute it to the various individual bondholders. The Kremlin saying that that has been stuck uh, at Euroclear, we think perhaps because of sanctions. So they're saying, look, we have the means, we can pay this. All along, uh, the Kremlin and the finance ministry have, have sort of dismissed any allegations uh, that they could be heading for a default uh, as artificial because they say that they have the means to pay. And there are a lot of variables. There are different clauses in these bonds. There are things like, you know, it could have to be settled in court, according to one expert I spoke to. And of course, today, we're not actually getting rating agencies' ratings on Russia because sanctions prevent that, EU sanctions. So, so it is really complicated. It is very murky. But in a sense, it doesn't make much difference to Russia in the near term because they're already locked out of financial markets, international debt markets in particular. This doesn't change that. But it does sort of cement their status as a pariah on international markets. And it does mean that that 
will be even harder to recover from. Yeah, and you raise a great point, and I think we should make that clear for our audience as well. They don't need to raise money and perhaps can't raise money on financial markets because no one wants to lend to them, at least in the West at this moment. But mm. countries don't like defaulting on debt unless they absolutely have to because they like to be seen as a reliable partner. And that was when that was what the finance minister said last week when he said, look, we've paid the money. He was making the point that they still want to be perceived as a reliable partner, this war aside. Yeah, and I think the, the question as to whether this matters uh, to Russia has significant nuance because memories in Russia are pretty long uh, and they still remember the default in 1998 that, of course, was a very different case than they defaulted uh, on $40 billion worth of domestic debt. It caused inflation to spike over 80 percent uh, and many people lost their savings overnight. So I think some of this is messaging to the domestic audience. This is not the same as 1998. You're not going to see your savings evaporate uh, overnight. And that really matters to the Russian people, in particular uh, as Putin tries to maintain a level of support for what he calls his special military operation in Ukraine, Julia. Exactly. Great context. Claire Sebastian, thank you. Protests have swept the United States after a Supreme Court decision ended the constitutional protection for abortion. Dozens of states are now rapidly bringing in laws to ban or severely restrict the procedure. In this report, Vanessa Yurkiewicz explores the economic impact on American women. When Alana Edmondson unexpectedly got pregnant with her partner at 21, she had a choice to make. She was working a low-wage retail job in Seattle while dreaming of getting her PhD at Yale. She made the tough decision to have an abortion. I knew that I would be stuck in a cycle of poverty that I was already trying to get out of. The Supreme Court dismantled 50 years of precedent when it overturned Roe v. Wade, returning abortion laws to states. There will be significant economic repercussions. Women denied abortion access who gave birth were more likely to experience increased poverty lasting at least four years compared to women who received an abortion, according to the University of California, San Francisco. It would just be very, very difficult, especially with like the prices of daycare. I mean, even feeding somebody else. 26 states will likely ban abortions. Those states already have lower wages, barriers to health care, and less funding for social services, according to the Economic Policy Institute. The impacts would be felt most by women of color. When women are not able to complete their education or get the job they want, this has severe economic con consequences, yes, for them, but this loss of economic potential, of possibility, will have ramifications for the state economy, the national economy as well. Anti-abortion! The anti-abortion group Right to Life cites public assistance efforts in five of the 26 states likely to ban abortion, aimed at helping pregnant women and new moms. And now dozens of corporations are stepping in, providing protections for employees in those states. I think for any employer that cares about issues of diversity, equity and inclusion, to stay silent on such an issue is really just not not OK. Yelp, which calls the SCOTUS decision a denial of human rights and a threat to workplace gender equality, said before the ruling it's covering travel and health care for employees, family members and partners seeking an abortion anywhere in the U.S. Do you think it's both an asset for retention of employees and then also an asset for attracting new employees to the company? 
I think it's both. It has really been a wonderful recruiting tool in terms of uh, prospective employees saying, I want to work at a company that is out there and loud about what they believe in and what they care about. Edmondson went on to realize her dream and moved to Connecticut to get her PhD in literature at Yale. She says she feels lucky to have been able to make her own choice. Thinking outside of myself, it felt very scary for other people um, who can get pregnant, who might not have the option to live their dream if they wanted it. Vanessa Yakevich reporting there and more on the impact of the overturning of Roe v. Wade later in the program when I speak with Dan Green Foster. Her turnaway study details the devastating long-term impact of being denied an abortion in America. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Zero COVID policy in Beijing for five years? Well, that's the claim reportedly made by a senior Chinese Communist Party official. There was such a huge backlash to the remarks online. Censors have now deleted the comments from the internet. CNN Sina Wang joins us live from Beijing. It doesn't surprise me that there was a dramatic backlash to the prospect of living under the zero COVID policy rules. The testing, as you've described to us many times, Selena, for the next five years. Yeah, Julia, no surprise. There was both alarm and outrage across the country after that announcement came, according to a Communist Party newspaper attributed to a top Communist Party official. This was from the Beijing Daily. This was citing Tai Chi, who is the Beijing's party chief, a close ally of Xi Jinping, and quoted was quoted saying this. For the next five years, Beijing will resolutely implement COVID-19 pandemic control measures and uphold the zero COVID policy to prevent imported cases from coming in and domestic cases from rebounding. And the domestic pandemic control measures that were mentioned included this regular PCR testing, which we currently have to do in Beijing and many major cities across China, strict entry rules into Beijing, health monitoring in neighborhoods and public areas, as well as strict monitoring and testing for people coming in and out of Beijing. Now, in response to that, there was an outpouring of not just anger, but also hopelessness because we're in year three of the pandemic and people are fed up that they still have to go through these strict protocols when the rest of the world has moved on. But in response, after this huge amount of outrage, we saw Beijing Daily, this Communist Party newspaper, actually remove that line in the next five years. And also Weibo, which is China's Twitter-like social media platform, banned the hashtag for the next five years. And the Communist Party newspaper attributed the removal of that line to a publishing error. But Julia CNN reviewed that speech online and the party official did in fact talk about these zero COVID policies that would be in place for the next five years. And let me read to you some of the angry Weibo comments that were posted. They included, quote, I have to rethink whether I should continue to stay in Beijing in the long term. Another Weibo post said, quote, for the next five years, what is the point of being alive even? Right now in China, even though major cities are starting to open up, still all close contacts and positive cases are sent to quarantine facilities. Entire cities and communities are shut down over just a handful of COVID-19 cases. And critics say that really this policy is more rooted in political ideology than science. Because Xi Jinping has directly tied his leadership to zero COVID, well, that means it's not going away anytime soon. Health experts say that the country should be pouring resources into increasing the vaccination rate 
especially for the elderly population and making mRNA vaccines available. But instead, the government is pouring resources into these costly testing and quarantine sites. So huge frustration here. And really, the pandemic as well has increased the Communist Party's social control. They are now able to track all of our movements. Our daily routines are all controlled by the color of the health code on our apps. And people fear that this deepening surveillance and tracking is also here to stay long after COVID is gone. Julia. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Joining us there from Beijing. Now, a devastating drought drought has triggered a humanitarian crisis across the Horn of Africa. The region is experiencing the driest conditions in four decades. Millions are at risk of starvation, with one UNICEF official warning of, quote, an explosion of child deaths soon if the world does not act immediately. South African officials say four people remain hospitalized after a deadly and unexplained incident at a tavern. More than 20 young people who had partied at the venue mysteriously died on Sunday morning. Authorities have shut down the pub to investigate the cause of their deaths. They will take samples from their bodies to toxicology labs for further analysis. Okay, and straight ahead, deepening inequalities. A 10-year study found restricting abortion rights disproportionately hurts the already poor and vulnerable. The study's lead on overturning Rowan Wade v. Wade. And a ray of hope, the startup using solar power to pull water out of thin air. I speak to the CEO of Source Global. Welcome back to First Move and a return to one of our top stories this hour. The overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States and the impact on women as many states deny access to abortions. Long before such a ruling was imaginable, a study by the University of California, San Francisco, highlighted the kinds of impacts it could have. In the Turnaway study, researchers spent a decade following the lives of a thousand women from more than 20 states. Its main conclusion was that while having an abortion does not harm women's health or well-being, being denied one results in worse outcomes in terms of health, wealth and family. Joining us now is the woman who led that study, Dr. Diane Green Foster, a professor at the University of California, San Francisco. She's also the director of research for its Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health program. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I think the, the critical aspect of this one for me was that this wasn't done in preparation of an overturning of, of Roe v. Wade, but it mm -hmm. is now being used as evidence of the, the sort of detrimental and devastating impact it can have for, for many reasons, including a burden that falls on those least able to afford it. That's right. When we started this study, we were interested in the consequences of receiving an abortion primarily, and we needed a comparison group, and we picked people who wanted an abortion and couldn't get one. And unfortunately, with the decision on Friday, it's, you know, that group becomes the more important one because many, probably hundreds of thousands of people in uh, many states will soon not be able to get a legal abortion in their state. I mean, we can go through the the financial impact, the, the mental impact, all the different areas and the impact on their existing family, which was something that was, was quite important and fascinating for me reading this report. Um, but if we look at the financials first, one of the things that you suggested and found was that those that are denied an abortion or have to carry an unwanted child to, through to um, 
to term have four times greater odds of living below the federal po poverty line. Afterwards, they have lower credit scores, a higher likelihood of bankruptcy or being in debt. It has a dramatic impact financially for, for many of these women and their families. Yeah, and that's consistent with what people say when they're seeking abortion. The leading reason people give is they feel they can't afford to have a child or they can't afford to have another child. And what we see is that they're right, that um, people who are denied an abortion experience an immediate drop in full-time employment and are more likely to report that they don't have enough money for basic living needs for the full five years that we followed them. And in many cases... And this surprised me too. 60% of cases, the women being denied already had other children. T to your point about yeah. there being consequences for the broader family. And actually very few of them go on to decide to, to put the child up for adoption. In fact, 90% of them keep the child. And that has consequences for the child, perhaps for resentment, but also for, for the other children in the family too. Yeah, when we look at the consequences for women's older children, what we see is that uh, the existing children are more likely to live in poverty, less likely to hit developmental milestones if their mother was denied an abortion than if she received one. And the child born because she was denied an abortion, if we look at that child's outcomes compared to the next child born to women who receive abortions. So this comparison is really about if women have the ability to to determine the circumstances of their births. Uh, what we see is that children born from later pregnancies experience better maternal bonding and are less likely to live in economic hardship. I mean, one of the other things as well that stood out to me was the choices that a woman makes as a result of having to carry the child to term in terms of perhaps a partner, more likely to stay with an abusive partner, more likely to raise the child alone, perhaps, if the circumstances are different. Again, it's, it's consequences for the mother, for the family, for the child. Maybe the most important part of the study is when we ask people what their reasons were for wanting an abortion, all the reasons they gave us were exactly the, what we found when we studied this over time were the experience of the people who were denied abortions. So what I take from this is that when people are making the decision about what to do with an unwanted pregnancy, they know their own circumstances, they know their responsibilities, they know what their aspirations are, and they're trying to make a decision that's best for themselves and their families. And when they're unable to get that wanted abortion, their outcomes are measurably worse off. And what we often hear is the emotional, the psychological impact of having an abortion and how detrimental that can be for a woman. But again, and this was the point of the study, not what we've spent all this time talking about, but what the impact is actually of, of having got that abortion and what happens. And even five years out, 95% of the women in this study were saying, I, I made the right choice. I did the right thing. In my mind, I did the right thing. We don't find evidence. That's exactly right. We don't find evidence of mental health harm from an abortion. Um, in the short term, people who are denied abortions actually have worse mental health. That's in uh, higher anxiety, lower self-esteem. And over time, the biggest differences between those who receive and those who are denied abortions isn't in mental health. It's really in physical health and economic well-being. And obviously we can't track perhaps if regret comes later on in life, if people are in a stable relationship, that wasn't part of this study. So I should just make that point. But actually what worries me most 
about this study is that it was done with the comparison of women that were too late to get an abortion, not under the new circumstances as a result of the Supreme Court decision, which is women simply not being able to get access to an abortion. Um, and they weren't in a situation where they were afraid of perhaps police knocking on the door saying, is this what you were trying to do? If they were perhaps having a, a miscarriage, for example, being afraid to go and get medical access or, or help in case they're accused of yes. perhaps trying to bring on uh, an abortion. I know it's subjective, it's, it's difficult to, to quantify or to get a sense of, but, but Dan, I'm sure you've also thought about the consequences for women today under this completely separate situation, which is arguably far worse if they're trying to get access to an abortion and now simply can't. Yeah, I think you're right that what the Turnaway study doesn't capture is all the additional legal risk that this decision has uh, will result from this decision where people may be hesitant to get treatment for complications because they're worried about the law. And um, that's a part that isn't isn't captured. In terms of people seeking abortion later in the Turnaway study, we actually don't see a big difference between the people who um, sought abortions later versus earlier. It was mostly a difference of not realizing that they were pregnant. Mm. So I think that the health outcomes and the economic outcomes we can expect under this Dobbs decision and what we weren't able to measure that will be in the future are all the negative legal consequences. Diana, what do you hope is the response to this Supreme Court decision and the consequences that you perhaps understand and can quantify better than most? What do you hope the response is? Um, I would, I, it, I'm not feeling very hopeful right now, but mm. I would like to see a shift in our country from just talking about abortion as a political issue, as an ideological issue, to having some understanding and compassion for the experience of somebody who's pregnant when they don't want to be and is trying to make the best decision for themselves and their families. That's so rarely the conversation that we've been having, and it allows the Supreme Court justices to just ignore the consequences for families. So I maybe in the future we'll start to shift to un having more respect for childbirth and pregnancy and what a massive sacrifice that is and making sure that people are supported um, in, in pregnancy and also in early parenthood. Mm. No easy decisions. Diana, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time. You. Diana Green Foster there, professor at the University of California at San Francisco and the leader of that Turnaway study. Thank you once again. Okay, still to come here on First Move. Inflation bites, but that's not stopping animal lovers spending on their furry friends. We speak with the CEO of retailer Petco right after this. And welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Monday. Investors beginning the session on Team Green. Look at that. Stocks extending. Last week's solid gains, the first weekly rise on Wall Street so far this month. Tech stocks were triumphant, up more than 7%. The S&P 500 popping out of bear market territory too. So bear market, remember, down 20% from the highs. We're back up out of that now. News on Friday too that Americans' inflation expectations are not as high as first feared helping the bullish case for stocks too. Falling commodity prices suggesting that global growth may also be softening, encouraging news for central banks trying to weaken demand and hold price pressures down. Oil has also fallen for two weeks straight. 
Economic bellwether copper also tumbling more than 6%. Investors hoping global rates may not have to rise as aggressively as first feared if the demand outlook cools and inflation moderates. Okay, lions and tigers and bears. Well, more like dogs, cats, cows and horses. Oh my, pet retail giant Petco, which operates more than 1,500 stores across the United States, Mexico and Puerto Rico, has reaped the benefits of accelerated pet ownership during the pandemic. The pet industry has stayed resilient even as inflation takes a bite out of pet owners' pockets. A recent survey showed 71% of dog owners say pet-related costs like food, toys and vet visits are higher because of inflation, but a rise in prices hasn't stopped animal lovers from spending on man's and woman's best friend. Joining us now is Ron Coglin. He's the CEO of Petco. Ron, fantastic to have you on the show. I want to start there because I think a lot of us thought that the dramatic rise in pet ownership, and I'm one of those that, that got a pet during the pandemic, was pulling purchases forward from the future. But actually what at least the last year's data has told us is it's not slowing down anytime soon. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. There was a lot of theories that there was this great pet pull forward. We saw 11 million new pets in 2000, but heightened in 21. And actually in 22, the projection is 2% growth in number of pets. That's higher than pre-pandemic 1%. So there's a lot of pet parents like you that brought in furry friends and they continue to do so. And not slowing down yet. Do you think it's sustainable? I just wonder what saturation looks like. I, I read that there's an estimated 78 million dogs and 85.8 million cats owned in the United States. That's 44% of households have a dog. And that compares to 35% of households that, that have a car. That's mind-blowing yeah, to me. Well yeah. yeah, it is. And if you look at actually go talk to Gen Zers, millennials, 65 percent plan on getting a new pet in the next five years. So there continue to be um, new pets coming into homes. And one of the dynamics is we're seeing second pets, third pets. Um, coming into homes. And in actually 21, what we saw is cat really took off, double digit growth in the number of cats um, coming into homes. And we're really increasing our focus on cats. But uh, more and more now with our new concept that we just launched, now we're getting into equine and other, other areas as well. Oh, we'll come back to that in a second, because I know that's um, that's exciting, too. Do you think that's people acquiring second and third pets simply as people transition to perhaps being back into the office? They need playmates. That, that's a component of it. I also think that's why you saw cat growth uh, yeah. in 21 with the anticipation. But most folks are hybrid now. So um, I think that's driving the increased uh, pet adoptions as well. Are you seeing any adjustment in, in parent behavior? And I touched on it in the introduction for rising prices yeah. because it, it is influencing toys, vet care. I've certainly seen it too. Are people trading down in the same way that they perhaps would with food or do, do pets come first? Yeah, the, uh, the answer to you is the is last bit. Um, yeah. Pets absolutely come first. We're not seeing a trade down. In fact, in our category, we're seeing continued premiumization to better and better foods, better and better care of pets. And a big part of that is millennials and Gen Zers adopted the majority of the new pets, and they are driving this trend towards humanization. If I'm having salmon and sweet potatoes, guess what? Yummy is having salmon and sweet potatoes. <laughs> Yummy is my dog. And we're seeing more and more of that. And the embodiment of it is fresh frozen category, which is um, heading towards a four to $5 billion category. And it wow. is basically human grade food served to your pet. Is it good nutrition for a pet, though? Because, you know, I have this debate with my 
a veterinarian about this and whether human food is necessarily good for dogs or cats, wh whichever it is, versus perhaps those that are artificial, but they're created to be balanced. How do you handle that in store? Yeah. Yeah. So the human grade, when I talk about human grade, it's human grade ingredients that are specially formulated under veterinary guidance mm -hmm. for the pets. So it is not just um, cooking your chicken or your rice and giving that. It is special formulas for your pets. But we also have scientific formulas from great folks like Hills um, that are specifically for different conditions, whether it's weight loss, whether it's urinary tract, et cetera. So we have uh, different offers for different pet needs. I'm very familiar with all of those things. One, people cooking for their pets, but also um, specialized diets as well. OK, let's talk about rural communities, because this is another huge growth opportunity that you've identified. And it's not just household pets now, it's farm animals, as I again mentioned right. in the introduction. And it's a huge opportunity, not only for food, nutrition, but also veterinary care as well. Talk us through that as a, as a growth plan for the business. Yeah, so it starts with uh, rural population growth. If you look at rural population, um, we've seen 42% um, growth in uh, pet spend in rural areas due to the rural population growth. Uh, we just launched our first of our farm and feed stores in Floresville, Texas. Floresville's population is up 30% since the last census. Um, it's a $7 billion addressable market. But more, more importantly, I was there a week ago and person after person said, thank you for opening this store because now I don't have to go to San Antonio to get my food. Now I don't have to go to San Antonio to get the veterinary care that I'm looking for. And so it's an underserved market and they're looking for a partner that's focused on the pet and pet business alone. But inherent in these markets is a wider assortment. So we have chicks, we have uh, products for pigs, for sheep, for lamb. And I got to tell you, the play, it was uh, an absolute fun experience. We had the mayor, Gonzalez Dippel, out there. We had the city council out there. We had the police force out there. We had the local rescue. And to me, the creme de la creme, sadly, a cat got hit um, by a car out front. And guess where the cat came for care? The cat came to us and we took it um, to emergency care and uh, helped it out. And that's a great example of us helping in our communities right off the bat in that instance. Yeah, these are essential services and you're saving so much time for some of these farmers and for those that are trying to take care of these animals in having to travel a long distance, whether it's for nutrition, food, but also um, vet care as well. Um, data. You are collecting enormous amounts of data, not only on pets, for example, but also now across the spectrum, if you're looking at farms, surely that's got to all feed into your uh, insurance products as well. How is this going to impact the growth of that and your ability to price appropriately? Yeah, well, if you look at our model, um, our customers trust us because we are their partners in taking care of their pets. So over 80% of our customers are in our PALS program and increasingly in our vital care program, which for $19.99 a month, you get a total care inclusive of free checkups, discounts on grooming, discounts on your food. So we really use the data to create a better experience for pet parents. And as you said, whether that is insurance offers, 
whether that's RX, there's all kinds of new uh, addressable market for us and all kinds of ways that we can take better care of pet because of that data. In terms of um, pricing, again, we have that higher value customer that's really looking to take the best care of their pet. So we don't, uh, we don't have the same pressures that others might. And importantly, <clears throat> less than 30% of our portfolio is sold at those mass players or those grocer players. So we don't have the same pricing pressures that others might. Mm. We have to talk about Yummy, your dog. <laughs> the love of my life. <laughs> yummy is uh, 13 and a half, a Aww. double cancer survivor. Uh, and uh, I will tell you, I switched him to fresh frozen food. Uh, uh, what was it? When I st first started Petco four and a half years ago, and uh, it changed changed his life. And uh, I I'm quite confident he wouldn't be here now if I didn't have him on some of the best food uh, you can give. Aww. Yeah, I know what having the love of your life being a pet friend <laughs> feels like, and they're the best things in the world. So um, yeah, yeah, I know you know the same from Romeo. Yeah, <laughs> anything. They're the best things, <laughs> better than humans. I don't deserve it. Look, there he is, my little smooch. Yes, Ron, great to chat to you. We'll talk again soon. Big hug Likewise. to Yummy as well. Thank you, the CEO Thank of Petco you. there. Thank you. Okay, up next, from pets to tech. I speak to the CEO of a startup using solar energy to distill drinking water. But how? We're here. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The world is running out of water and it's a escalating crisis. Drinking water, I mean, today. More than 25% of the world's population, 2 billion people lack access to clean water. By 2025, that figure could rise to 50%, says UNICEF. Many more people live in areas of water scarcity, where women and children predominantly spend an estimated 200 million hours every day collecting water, a colossal waste of time. A startup called Source Global is working on a solution. It's invented the technology to extract water from air using solar power. And joining us now is Cody Friesen. He's the CEO of Source Global. Cody, fantastic to have you on the show. Condensing water from the air is not a new idea, but the question of how that water is condensed and the energy used to do it is important. And that's what makes what you're doing so exciting. Just explain the concept and the technology behind it, please. And welcome. Yeah, great to be on with you, Julia. And as you noted, uh, you know, the, the challenges with water around the world are dramatic, right? 2.4 billion people lack safe access to water at their home. And, you know, that manifests itself as, you know, today, 200 million hours will be spent by women and girls fetching water. And, you know, over a trillion bottle, plastic bottles of water will be sold this year, right? And so that challenge is just massive. And we aim to make uh, safe water, an unlimited resource around the globe by taking basically the principles of renewables. You know, we think about how solar electricity is now the lowest cost electricity on the planet. We effectively do that for water. Source hydro panels basically take in sunlight and air and can produce perfect water almost anywhere on the planet. So you're going to have to explain that more deeply. So no further sure. filtration or cleaning is required. Everything happens within the panel. Exactly. So, you know, we sort of live on a wet planet. I think all of us appreciate that. But the total amount of water vapor that's in the lower part of the atmosphere is just immense. About, it's 
like 100 million years of all of humanity's water replaced every single week by the hydrologic cycle. And so the question really only becomes of how do you take that water vapor and make it liquid in a renewable way? And so what we do is we take hygroscopic materials that have been engineered to concentrate the water vapor from the air by about 10,000 times by volume. And the way that you have experienced that in your, in your own life is, uh, you know, when you leave a lid off of a sugar bowl, the sugar gets a little bit clumpy. Or if you live in a place with a really cold winter, you know, your antique wooden furniture cracks and then swells in the, win in the summer. That, that process is just those materials coming to equilibrium with their environment. And so in a very similar way, these engineered materials do exactly that. And then we expose them to sunlight. So the water vapor respires back out. And we do that many hundreds of times per day. And so by doing that, we basically produce distilled water. I mean, it's phenomenal. One panel produces how much water in a day? Can you do the comparison with the number of plastic bottles that one panel could save to your earlier point about how many plastic bottles we'll produce in one day? Because this is another piece of the jigsaw puzzle here that, that you're tackling. Yeah, exactly. So uh, each panel replaced about 10 plastic bottles per day and has a 15 year life. So you think about that 60,000 or so bottles that are displaced through its lifetime. And then of course, just like when you think about solar, rarely do you see one solar module. We put these together to serve individual homes, schools, high-end hotels, whole communities. And so we're able to basically match the amount of drinking water that's needed at that place in a way that really solves that, that problem in a sustainable way, in a way that is independent of whether the rain has fallen or if the infrastructure is good. I was just doing the math there. So over a 15-year period, we're talking one hydro panel eliminating the need for about 54,000 bottles. How yeah. big is the hydro right. panel and what's the cost of one panel? Yeah, so the, the size of a hydro panel is about the size of an industrial solar module. Uh, and when we sell them online, they're about $2,000 per panel. And of course, when we do large arrays, they're lower cost. When we think about the, the places where we've gone. So we've now completed over 450 projects in over 50 countries. Uh, starting in our own backyard here, we have the largest Native American population in the, in the United States is the Navajo Nation. And that nation is the size of West Virginia. 175,000 people, 54,000 people with no water. So last year we installed at over 500 homes and prevented them from having to drive long distances to go get their water. We've also done projects with Aboriginal Housing Office for uh, Australian Indigenous uh, and whole communities such as the Warm Springs Tribe in, in, uh, in Oregon. And so sort of when we think about solving water stress, you know, today we have these challenges associated with, you know, over a million, million miles of lead pipes in the United States, aging infrastructure around the world, of course, groundwater overdraw everywhere and climate change, of course, on a planetary basis. And so those challenges are substantial and getting worse. And yet we're still sort of in the Roman era where we still talk about how much rainfall there was last year. So we know whether or not we're going to have enough water behind the dam. And so how do we, the question becomes, how do we move ourselves from this historical sort of Roman era approach of waiting from the, for the water to fall out of the sky to a 2022 approach that enables us to program where there is perfect drinking water any given time in a sustainable way that breaks, you know, really takes us forward. Oh, I'm running out of time and I have millions more questions to ask you. I guess the digital component of this is vitally important too, because you can track the performance to ensure nothing's malfunctioning and going wrong, which I know someone will comment on if I don't ask you about this. But um, the other thing I want to ask you is, 
the needs are so vast. One company's not going to address this. Will you license this technology to, to other companies? I know you've raised money from some huge names like BlackRock, Duke Energy, and Bill Gates' Breakthrough Energy Ventures. Do you need more money? And are you talking to governments? Look, I've thrown all the questions at you. <laughs> yeah, Julia, I think you hit the nail on the head with that last part, which is the reason why a BlackRock or a Bill Gates or, these, or Harvard you know, come into this company is because they see just the massive scale of the problem, right? The TAM or total addressable market is effectively infinite for a single company. You nailed right. it, right? And the, you know, from my perspective, anybody working on uh, perfecting drinking water is a hero in my book because <laughs> it is just such a massive issue that, you know, when I talk about the, the number of hours spent by women and girls fetching water, that's like a statistic that sort of knocks you back 200 million hours just today. But of course, we all know that that's just the tip of the iceberg of the issue, right? The knock-on effects from that lack of education. Of course, they're fetching water with cholera in it or whatever. Uh, you know, they're, they tend to have higher uh, mortality rates and all these other issues that knock on from having to fetch water, right? And yet we're living in a world with smartphones, 6 billion smartphones, where every single human on the planet effectively has access to all of humanity's information. And so... You know, we've gone from information poverty, if you want, to information wealth. And, you know, food poverty is getting ever less challenged. And yet water poverty is expanding. Yes. So it's a huge problem that needs to be solved in a new way. And so that I think that's number one. Um, and I think you're exactly right. So from a licensing perspective, from a subsidiary perspective, from other people coming in with similar ideas or maybe, you know, other resources, all of that, we need all of those uh, different approaches to solve this problem. Um, from a digital perspective, uh, so every single hydro panel, I just mentioned the materials part of this, right? There's uh, the thermodynamic element, there's the machine learning element, there's the, the digitized element, there's a bunch of layers that make source hydro panels really special. And one of those is that every hydro panel is connected to the cloud around the globe. And so for the first time, we've really built a global digital drinking water utility. Right. And so we were able for our network operations center to see that we're doing what we say we've done. Right. And and if we're falling short, we can get out there and solve it. And that, again, it's programmable. It's distributed. It's digital. So it's a different it just it's, leapfrogs. It's and you know what? I've that... run out of time and I'm being shouted at. Okay. So I'm going to have to get you to come back and talk about it. I, I can put the onus on you. <laughs> so I knew I had to interrupt you, Cody. Amazing work yeah, that perfect. you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Come back and we'll, we'll reconvene All on this conversation. Way. Oops. Cody Friesen there, the CEO of Source Global. Great to chat to you. Thank you. We're back after this, I think. Oops. And to a really fast and finally, Elvis may have left the building, but he's still a king size draw at the box office. Preliminary numbers show the new Elvis biopic in a dead heat for number one with Top Gun Maverick. Estimates show each film made just over $30 million at the U.S. box office. A final tally is expected later today. Elvis is a Warner Brothers movie, the studio owned by CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. Now I'm about to leave the building as well, for better or worse. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.